Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to this week's show. Now my guest today is a very, very good friend of mine, Trey Taylor. Now the thing that I love about Trey is that he manages to get himself involved in multiple things. One could argue too many things, but he manages those those areas with a certain grace and a certain poise that is superhuman to most people. He has a, an amazing ability to be both impactful and efficient at the same time. Now, let me give you a flavor of that. He is the managing director of Threadneedle, uh, which is the Taylor family office. He's the chief executive officer of Taylor Insurance Services. He's the managing director of Trinity Blue Consulting and a founding partner of Ascend Partners. He's an investor. He gets involved in scaling companies and he tends to be in a lot of the right rooms. And that's how we initially met after being introduced by our mutual friend, Brad Hart, who, by the way, has been on this show previously. And I recommend that you go and listen to the conversation that I had with him because it is fire. Now, back to Trey. I wanted to get Trey on the show because, as I mentioned, he's a good friend, but we have been mentoring each other over the last 12 months or so, introducing connections, talking about various business partnerships, and I have got a heap of value from those conversations, and I wanted to bring him on the show because I know that his perspectives, his insights, his intellect, all of those things is going to give you a lot of value too. Now, not only does he do all that stuff, he is also the author of an amazing book, one of my favorite books on leadership, which is called A CEO Only Does Three Things, Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. Now, I'm not going to go through what the three things are, because that's what we talk about for the next hour or so. What I'm trying to get to is this idea that if I ignore these three things and I'm constantly just jumping in doing people's job for them, then I'm never going to get to the place where the ripples are smooth and I can choose where to put my energy. Dare I say it, it's a fantastic book because it simplifies and focuses what you should be doing as a founder, an entrepreneur, a business leader to absolutely drive performance in your business. Now, sometimes as a CEO, I've been there and done it. We take on too many things. We, we feel like we have to control everything. What you get from reading Trey's book is actually it is the opposite that is true. I don't often find a founder with a problem describing their vision to me. I often find founder problems in mission and mission creep. So sit back and enjoy this conversation. If you are the founder of your own company, if you are a CEO, even if you're a leader and you're working with a CEO, understanding what they need to be doing, what they should be doing is absolutely going to help you. And we are going to go deep into that during today's conversation. So there we have it. Without further ado, welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Trey Taylor. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. Another week, another awesome guest. In fact, a very good friend of mine on the show today, someone that I've got to know over the last 12 months or so, being uh, introduced by a mutual friend of ours and we kicked it off, didn't we? We kicked it off, we hit it off, <laughs> all that stuff. So welcome to the show today, Mr. Trey Taylor. 
Nick, so good to see you, man. Uh, obviously fan of the show for a long time. And then uh, Brad Hart, of course, introduced us. And uh, what a pleasure it is to do uh, something so nice with a good friend of mine. So good to see Very you. Very much so. Very much so. And Brad's a great guy. And you know what? It's interesting, actually, the introductions that he's made. And there's a few other people who are good at this, right? They kind of just weave out between different people, kind of where they think there's going to be alignment in terms of values, what they're focused on. Uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, and then they make the introduction and look what happens. Lots of cool things. Always magic when he puts somebody on. My assistant knows that if he makes an introduction, she doesn't ask me anything. She just schedules the <laughs> call immediately. So he's got that uh, privilege over here because he's earned it so well with all, all well, so likewise, many good introductions. Likewise yeah. as well with on my side of things. Well, let's, I mean, we are, I think we've been in similar rooms beforehand though. Um, things like Matt Andrews, Family Mastermind and stuff like that. So we've probably sure. sort of been around the edges of different stuff. But I think where you and I really aligned was on our love of business growth and specifically things like acquisitions, how you can drive value in companies. Um, making them more valuable, but not just through kind of the financial lens, but through the leadership lens. And I should Absolutely. point out, and probably the big discussion we're going to have today, and the reason I wanted to have you on the show, is that Trey, you are the author of an amazing book. I'm going to hold it up here. For people listening, they can't even see it. And actually, the camera's now working. There we go. The book is called A CEO Only Does Three Things. Finding Your Focus in the C-Suite. And this, do you know what? When I read this book, because I read this before we first met, I thought, you know what, I'm going to read the book first because I knew that you'd been an author of this. And I was really, really impressed by some of the different things that you talked about here that I hadn't read in other books on leadership, right? Because sometimes, you know, the same stuff can be rehashed, right? Like we see it in, yeah, in, for all sure. over the place. Yeah. But this was a very refreshing take. And where I want to kick off, well, firstly is, why why did you feel the need or the the drive to write this yeah so not to get into too much backstory nick but uh, you know i had this career trajectory underway when we had a family tragedy and i had to come home and take over the family business a multi-generational uh, financial business and was not uh, prepared for it was actively encouraged never to go into that line of work by my dad and uh, so I went to law school and became a venture capitalist and worked in-house a very large internet 1.0 and 2.0 companies, figuring out the M&A strategy and the venture capital strategy and that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden was sucked back into my you know hometown, very small hometown, into a role that I wasn't prepared for and had never wanted to take. And I remember after sort of making the agonizing three-day decision to do that, uh, I came, made the announcement, closed the door to my office and Googled, how do you be a CEO? Because I had been in those rooms, but I had never sat in that chair. And so uh, attorney by training, I had legal pads everywhere, of course. And I kept one legal pad next to my desk, always jotting down sort of the lessons that I learned in that role, with my intention being that the guy coming after me would be able to reference those notes you know, and, and have a shorter time on the journey of learning the job than I did. And then, of course, I never vacated that role. Um, I started doing some consulting. This is probably 10, 12 years later. And the consultant, you know, clients kept saying, how do you do this and how do you do that? And we need a book and that sort of thing. And, of course, I was lazy and didn't do it until pandemic hit. And I knew we'd be locked in the house for two years. And so I said, I'm going to knock this book out. And so I had done lots of prep work, uh, obviously, up to that point. It's 12, 15 years in at that point. 
So that's the genesis of the book. And, and what it came down to was a CEO only does three things. And those things are culture, people, and numbers. And I know we'll, we'll sort of unpack We're going to get into things. that for sure. Well, there's, yeah, two, there's yeah. two observations as you tell that story, because I think you mentioned this, this to me once before, but I just had this feeling. It feels like, have you seen the movie? It's a wonderful life. Yeah, of course. You know, the bit where like um, the main character kind of gets sucked back into this world and he can't leave and go and do the other stuff. So <laughs> this kind of this um, vision of you kind of out there doing all this really clever things in venture capital and all that sort of stuff and then having to come back into this this place. What it was, what was a it like? Big it was a culture. Yeah, it was a big culture shock. And I mean, the real culture shock was I left a, a life that I had curated. I had a girl that I was going to put a ring on her finger very soon. I was moving to Washington, D.C. to take sort of a double jump promotion role. While I was interviewing for the role, the guy that was interviewing me quit. The guy I was going to work for quit. He got recruited elsewhere. And the VP that we had met said, you're going to take his role. So you're now not interviewing for the subordinate. You're going to interview for the senior position. And it was my dream job. Um, it was a, it was AOL, which you know shows how yeah. old I am, that AOL <laughs> would be a dream job for someone. And uh, you know it was a divestiture role. So I had spent the, my life in buying these companies and trying to put them together. Well, they had just gone through the same arc. And so, you know, I had to raise a billion dollars in sales. And that was when a billion dollars was a real number. That was something you put on the resume back then. And I came home to run a business that was doing sub 1 million a year. And it was just a very wow. different type so of I thing. Wasn't there wasn't off anything. <laughs> I wasn't far off with my uh, yeah. It's a Wonderful Life analogy then, quite clearly. Yeah. Very, and very similar, but you had to do it. Like you know, there was this 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 pull, if you like, this calling from your family to step into it. You didn't have another choice. No, they didn't ask me to do it at all. Um, but you know, my dad was the kind of man. Uh, he he passed of, of COVID. We know now, which is the weirdest oh, wow. thing in the world. This is two thousand five, and on his death certificate, it says complications of SARS two virus. Right. So we had no idea what it was and it was exotic back then. And, you know, we, I guess we were just trendsetters as it were, but, um, you know, it was a real thing. And my brother worked in the business and was one of my dad's best friends, but he, he was, he was grieving too heavily, not too heavily, but he was grieving heavily. He wasn't sort of capable of stepping in and doing it at that time. Um, and so, you know, my dad had never said no to me. When I would show up, I went to, did some of my uni, as you know, at, at, at Oxford in the UK. And I just showed up one day and told my dad in two weeks, I'm moving to Oxford. And he, and he made that happen with, with capital and with, you know, other assistance and things like that. He didn't tell me, no, he didn't pull me back. He was always pushing me to, to those kinds of dreams. When I came back home, I didn't want to go back to my old university. I wanted to go to a new one, which was much more expensive. He just made those things happen. He didn't tell me no. But we had this unspoken agreement that, like, I owed the family for that. And I always thought that I would be the one to determine when the repayment of that debt started. And that's what I realized uh, in that period of time when I sort of secluded myself for a couple of days to have that honest conversation with myself is we're never in decision on that. So it oh. was my job to do it. And my, my, my mom and my brother did not ask me to. And my mom didn't want me to. She wanted me to go pursue my own life. But there were too many people that were relying on us as a family to do what we had promised to do. And so I felt like that was my role. I didn't want to do it. I don't want to sound like a martyr, like I jumped into it. I was quite the crybaby for many years about it. Um, 
but I did finally mature on that issue as well. <laughs> and we have had a, a wonderful run. So we've taken that from a small business into a, a much larger boutique, extraordinarily respected business, and now have turned that um, entire platform into a family office where we uh, enable investments in other businesses that look uh, sort of like that. So just to be clear, because I think you mentioned it a second ago, the business was was doing less than a million when you came into it? It was, yeah. Wow, now you've turned it into what you just described. Well, this is yeah. this is good because I think there's another observation from what you said initially, which was you kind of taught yourself this to some extent. Like there's a bit of like, I'd never actually, you'd never been a CEO before this, correct? That's right. No, I never had the senior role. I had been sort of in the C-suite and I had helped in the C-suite a lot. So as the sort of in-house counsel or, um, you know, the, the, the chief biz dev guy or those kinds of things. Cause I was at WebMD. I was one of the first hundred employees at WebMD. I was one of the um, sort of refounding team at Earthlink, which is an ISP here uh, where we were sort of getting our arms around running real businesses at that point. And then that position that I had at AOL was going to be a, a dotted line to the, to the sort of president who was considered to be the one, you know, tasked with, making things ship shape there. Yeah. Got it. Well, but there's, I'd never there's, held a, the there's title. a big difference though, um, from someone who's been there as well. Um, and as you know, now from <laughs> observing the CEO role versus being it <laughs> right. Yeah. And actually yeah. And, and, and it's a lonely role, right? It's a lonely role. Actually, when you've got a big organization underneath you, it's a very, very lonely role when it's kind of just you probably in a few people. Yeah, I think that's the case. And in the book, I have a, a, a quote that that people, you know, on Kindle, you can tell what they highlight. They highlight this quote the most. And the quote is something along the lines of, you know, the CEO's job is the most lonely job in the organization. That's the joy and the hurt of it, you know, because we we don't have peers inside the organization. So if I decide to sell a business one day and run off down the hall and tell my sales team, eh, I think I'm selling the business, I get a lot of money for it. Well, that's a complete demotivator for them. And it, you know, it introduces fear and volatility into their world. So it's not something that I can do. I have to go find a peer group to do it. That's the hurt of being so alone in the job. Yeah. But the joy of it is that, you know, making the decisions right or wrong, I'm the one charting the course there. And that is, you know, it's, that's a, that's an ego producing thing if you get it right. Well, unless, unless you sell the business to a private equity firm and they put a board on top of you and <laughs> that's a different conversation for a that's different, a different challenge. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, let's get into, so again, just thinking back to what you said when we first started talking. Um, so you could have, I suppose, gone and got mentored by a CEO. You could have gone and got an MBA or not more education, whatever, whatever else. But you chose to go and research the practicalities of leadership in that in that seat, right? Which is then turned into this book. So yeah. take us through that journey, which then I think, you know, comes down to the three core areas that you speak about, culture, people, and numbers. Got plenty of questions around why those yeah, three things. Sure. Some of them aligned, absolutely. Some of them you know, interesting. So so how, yeah. how, what was the journey to get to those three things to, to summarize the core of your book? So I think I did by choice what everybody else does um, uh, by accident, which was I'm going to go learn the business from the bottom up. You know, so if mm -hmm. you start the thing, you learn it because you're the one putting it into place and then eventually handing it off to other people. I already had a functioning business and it was it was well functioning. It wasn't poorly functioning. It was just we could do more than we were doing and I could see that. But um, you know, that largely was a mistake 
to, to go in and learn things that weren't my job. But in doing it, I was able to sort of solve for the negative at, at some point to say, well, if these things are not my job, what, what would be my job if there was only the things that I could do and no one else could do? And not me as Trey as an individual, but in that role. And that's when I began to sort of tease those things out. And one of my great um, guys that I just absolutely love, he's not a mentor because I've never really met him, but he sort of mentors me in his blog posting and, and those kinds of things, um, has a, a, a phrase, you know, a story that he tells where he goes and, um, um, you know, he's talking to a, a sort of a veteran of the boardroom and they, he's a VC investor and they have to fire, you know, the CEO. And he says, well, we got to rehire a CEO. What does the CEO do? And the old guy just sort of rattles some things off. And when I heard that, I'm like, yeah, that is what I do. That is exactly what I should be doing. And every time I don't do those things, it means I'm doing somebody else's job and I'm probably not very good at that. And that was really the sort of philosophical genesis of it. And, and you know, the old guy didn't use culture people numbers, but he basically said culture people and numbers. And so that's where I tease that out from. There's a really good book. I'm not sure if you've read it. It's um by, I think it's Lou Gershner. I think I've got it over here. It's the, it's the turnaround of IBM. It's something like teaching elephants to dance. I probably got that wrong. Oh, I, I think, no, I think you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, basically, he talks about when he took over IBM, biggest company back then, certainly, certainly one of the biggest companies in the US, if not the world. And he went in and he only replaced two people. He replaced the CFO and the HR director or the chief HR director. And of course, people say, well, hold on, you know, there's, there's a big issue here. The business isn't performing. How can you turn around the company by just changing those two roles? And he said something like, in this company, we employ the best people in the world. We go to the best universities, get the best, you know, educated people. We haven't got a problem with the people in here. We've got a problem with the culture and we've got a problem with the numbers. So I'm going to change that, which is interesting. interesting. I don't know if you've seen that. It's quite, it's really, and, and then after that, the business turns around spectacularly. And there's some yeah. classic stories about everyone used to wear a blue suit and a white shirt. And he used to turn up to meetings wearing a blue shirt and people would literally fall off their chairs, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> stuff like that, such hierarchies and lots of things. So let's, let's get into, into the three areas. I want to go into them a bit more deeply, but one, I mean, we had a conversation a while back and I think you've had this point made a few times. Um, vision isn't here. Well, it's implied, I think. I don't think it's not here when you go through the book, but it's not explicitly stated as one of the three things. However, I think lots of people, if you asked what's the main role of a CEO or a founder or certainly the bit, the leader, it's to set the vision, to set that part first. What's your thoughts on that in the context of how you've written this? Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think vision changes over time as, as well it should. You know, the, the CEO's vision is never the same vision on day one as it is on day 3000. Um, so I wanted to tease out the things that that really do not change. These three things don't ever not become your job as the CEO. But I don't mean to crowd out vision as something that needs to be done. I just feel like vision is a lot more tactical than these three things are. Um, Gary Keller and I had a really great conversation. He asked me to speak to his um, his huge mastermind following um, uh, on his uh, stage uh, last year. And I said, well, Gary, you know, how are we going to reconcile the fact that you've written the one thing? And I'm saying it's the three things. And he said, because doing the three things are the one thing for a CEO. And he, he had no problem reconciling that immediately. 
uh, Cam Harold and I have talked quite a bit, um, you know, because he's kind of the vision guru, right? And uh, and he sees the same thing that your vision should change over time, but at no point will it not include culture, people, and numbers. Yeah. Okay. It's a nice it's a nice way of framing it because I, I don't get too obsessed with vision, to be honest, in my world because. I often try and uh, contextualize it by saying, well, you have to know where you're going, right? And and that can often be an outcome. And that outcome does not necessarily have to be something that's not going to ever be achieved. Because there's, there's lots of I'm different I'm so glad you're saying that. Yeah. You get it, don't you? Because yeah. sometimes people, I'll tell you why, the way I kind of talk about this with, with clients and whatever. So I say, so listen, when you're trying to exit a company, right, and you want someone to take it on, right? So what we call the transferability of the value you've created, quite often you have to have a direction of travel that when you bring a new partner in a new investor, they can see where it's heading towards. Right. And quite often a founder will jump off the bus before sure. that. And that vision, as we talk about has been created because it could be quite big and it could be quite expansive, but it doesn't have to be like, you know, I know found some founders have got a vision that they want to get a, a business up to a certain level of value and exit. Right. <laughs> that's the vision. They won't, they won't stand up at their town hall and say that but that's 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 the forward path the forward direction that they're looking at so so for me i don't think i think everyone has to have a direction of travel but whether that's vision or the encompassing definition of that i don't necessarily think that's true now i'm glad you're saying that because we, to me vision um when it's accurately described vision uh is a picture of what it looks like when we've made it that's very useful that gives goal clarity vision is not this navel gazing you know, do work in order to change the world, but really we're just trying to, you know, make ourselves sound better and that sort of thing. I don't often find a founder with a problem describing their vision to me. I often find founder problems in mission and mission creep. So it's not so much where are we headed that there is some clarity problems, although that is the case sometimes. It's very often how are we going to get there that that is the problem, mm. and uh, yeah. and and it's way more valuable when I'm evaluating investment opportunities for somebody to tell me, you know, um, A to Z, Z looks like this, and we're fine with that. But and we know what ABC looks like, but we don't know what DEF looks like. Those are the kinds of people that I want to be working with, um, not someone that just says I know what Z is, and and all the rest of the stuff is on autopilot and will no, happen no, just and because I know it. And also just, just to bring this up, because I think it's, it's worthwhile talking about it here is mission sometimes gets used as this idea about this is how we do something, right? But in reality, um, strategies are also the same definition, right? The strategies, the choices you make to achieve an choices. outcome, right? right? And quite often, like a mission might be to say, you know, our, our intent is to do these things, but the how that you do these things can evolve and change. You know, we talk a lot about AI, right? You know, you and I have connected yeah. on that. That's a different strategy than maybe, you know, doing something that involves manual or analog work, but the actual result of it might be the same. It's just the way that you achieve it's different. So I think the reason I bring this up now with you is I think there's lots of clarity in the way that you've described the simplicity of what the leadership role is as a CEO. And sometimes when I spend time with these CEOs, they get super confused because they feel like they have to fill out documents, right? And they have to, yeah. you know, stand up and talk about these things. When in reality, you know, if you if you hire the best people, right, the best people for what you need, if you give them the right tools, resources, environment to to help them deliver the best they can, 
and you keep track of all that. But most importantly, you look at, you know, the performance of the business, which comes back a lot to the numbers. That is the key stuff. That's the key stuff. Those are the levers that we have in front of us as CEOs. You know, so if I notice a problem in the business, there are three places that I'm going to go to analyze where the problem has its uh, generation. Um, if it isn't in those three things and I experiment on those three things, then I have other questions that I need to ask. Are we in the right business? You know, which is basically a strategy question. You know, are we trying to take it in the right way, which is basically a vision question. Is the mission proper that we're doing the things the way that we should be doing? But, but that's not the first place I'm going. The first place I'm going is to say, do I have the right person? Am I aiming at the right target? Is that person supported personally and professionally with a group of like-minded people? No one ever says, check, 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 by the way. Right. We always say, oh, yeah, I need to replace this person or promote this person or pay this person differently, you know, or I have them aiming at a target that really isn't there anymore, which is very uh, common. Or, you know, we have a jerk that got into the culture and is making things difficult for everybody, but as they will be is a very high performer. So we don't want to kill that high performer. You know, it's those kinds of conversations that, that we have to work through with, with our CEO consultant so, clients most of the time. So I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but why did you start with culture? Um, so you, to me, you say this, sorry, just to contextualize again, you say, you know, one of your chapters is culture trumps everything. Yeah which is a great quote that I totally stole from uh, Drucker, of course. I was going to say, uh, he said, wasn't, so, it wasn't a strategy, culture eat strategy for breakfast or something? Wasn't, he says that as well. <laughs> wasn't, yeah. wasn't that his yeah. Thing? yeah, exactly. Um, so for me, it doesn't start with culture. I just had that, uh, you know, you had to start somewhere. But to me, they are equally weighted and you can start where you need to. So in the intake process with anybody that I'm coaching, I let them decide where we want to start. Um, but... Okay. Uh, I like the uh, sort of pyramid that you can build if you go back to basics and say, these are our values, right? Because about 70% of companies that I work with never took the minute to sit back and say, these are the behaviors that we value. These are the things that we want to see be true in the world. Because it, it, Nick, you'll get this better than anybody. The reason you start a company is not to get a paycheck. It's not to provide for the family. It's not to to um, you know, have a nine to five or anything of that nature. The reason psychologically that you start a company is because something isn't true in the world and you wanna be the one to make it true. And you've probably sat in the background for a long time saying, I'm, I'm waiting on this to be true and it just isn't true. It's a way for us to live our values out loud. And so very often we will start with companies saying, tell me what's valuable to you, write it down, share it with each other, see how you react to it. If you have that foundation, and many companies do, but if you have and you put that foundation into place, that gives you a very good sort of sounding board about, well, is this person someone that I should bring in? Or is this goal expressed in numbers something that reconciles with the values of what we want to see be true in the world? And it, it provides a lot more clarity and a lot more sort of compass focus on where we can go with our activities. Yeah, I'm glad you said um, behaviors there as well, because one of the things I find people do is they write up words, right, up on a wall, and then they don't translate those into any behaviors. And they certainly don't translate that necessarily into performance. And then probably the worst thing, and you've seen this um, with some big examples like the Uber debacle and WeWork and things like that, you know, the leadership team don't even live the bloody things right? Yeah. Or demonstrate yeah. them. So therefore the whole thing breaks down. And it's funny, I was really lucky. I think we've, we've talked about this off air 
but um, I was involved in a company called Getty Images for many years and they had leadership principles as opposed to values. Uh, same concept actually, but the, the way it was written was interesting because the principle has a different meaning to it to some extent. It's more mm -hmm. of a standard. Mm -hmm. And they were expressed, there were seven of them, they were expressed as short mini statements as opposed to words. And each of those statements had a definition aligned yeah. to them as well. And yeah. they were so alive in the business tray. Honestly, like everyone knew them, everyone uh, gave feedback or measured people against them or to them. And yeah. you didn't last there very, very long if you didn't believe in them. So I'll give you an example of that. It was back in the, the time where everyone was doing 10 interviews to get a job at these tech businesses, right? The, you know, it's great, like Microsoft started that <laughs> the, or something. The kids today won't believe that that was ever That happens. Ten, yeah. The first interview was, <laughs> can you do the job? The other nine were, could you fit the culture? No, no kidding. Yeah. Yep. And, and when I was in that, I mean, the business was sold four or five times. I was there for two of those exits. It's now worth over 5 billion in enterprise value, but they put a lot of it down to those behaviors, those standards. So have you seen, I suppose, now that you've coached businesses, you've been involved in the scaling of your own company. What are some examples of, of kind of where you've seen this work really well and examples where oh. you've seen it not, or even become yeah. an issue? So the, the, the gold standard of when it is uh, not working is Enron, right? If you went oh, yeah. into Enron, uh, I think they were on Avenue of America, 6th Avenue in, in New York where their headquarters was. I could be wrong about that. But uh, I went to the lobby one time and it was, you know, Enron, the large logo sort of carved into the marble. And then it had their values below it, communication, respect, integrity, and excellence, and I literally could have gone around the corner to the conference room and seen no communication, no respect, no integrity, and no excellence, right? And, um, and so we believe in this articulated value statement, exactly the rubric that you described. So in my own business, we have 13, we call them beatitudes in the core business. My family has um, uh, seven core values that we uh, have and we review at the dinner table from time to time and you know, in those kinds of things, because to the point, it doesn't matter if I say integrity and I don't contextualize it and define it, right? I have to say that having integrity is the linchpin for the other decisions that we make. Those are the kinds of things we have to articulate. The second thing that you do is you have to ritualize those. You have to put those in the normal behavior of the organization. So every Friday on our staff call, for example, we start, I have two staff calls, management, and then all hands. We start with the beatitude of the week. And someone is assigned that beatitude. Uh, for the first two years, I did this every single week. I wrote the, the beatitude out itself, the value statement out. And then I wrote a story of how I had caught someone performing that well, never to the negative, always to the positive, unless I messed up and I would say, hey, I had an integrity breach this week I want to share with you guys to show people how not to do it. But those stories now over seven or eight years have circulated and become sort of the mythos of the organization. It's sort of the, you know, the canon of stories that, that we know that when we're talking about be truthful, we have a story of one time when Trey had to go in and tell a client that they were really terrible clients and he fired them because being truthful with the client was more valuable than sucking in the revenue and then spending it all in customer service and those kinds of things. Those stories inform people's behavior more than anything else that you can do. 
but you have to build those stories up over time by catching people doing the values. So, um, and, and, and it's a very uh, personalized thing. I have one client, a group of engineers, they have 48 value statements and they position them in, um, in an SOP. They call theirs the SOPs, right? And they go through them 48 times a year for every week. You know, they have one of their SOPs that we do you, do you that think that's over? About. Do you think that's overkill? Personally, <laughs> um, for my organization, it would be too much. We have 13 Beatitudes, which is almost too much. Uh, but for their organization and the way that they come together and think about things, it's it's well done. So they have one value that they select, and then they go four weeks and, and dig into the others. And then they have one value that they come back to. And so they have a, a process, of course, that they do. Oh. I have another company that they are fungineers. They build all of the really fun um, entertainment-based parade floats and things of that nature. So, of course, they have the fundamentals of their business, and they only right. have six. You know, so they repeat those six on a on a different cadence, um, and they have a process by which, when they choose one, they go and live it. So, uh, one of them is uh, fun with family. And so they go do something where the entire company brings their entire family. They rent out a theater. They have a private screening of the Star Wars movie or, you know, the latest Disney movie or something of that nature. So they really are living those things uh, all the time. Um, and we have we have people with three. We have people, you know, with any any number. It doesn't matter to me as I'm helping them. What matters to me is ritualizing it makes a behavior, makes a value show up in the behavior of your people. And the real key here is if that is happening, you don't have to manage it. So I got tears in my eyes uh, earlier in the year because we had uh, in our insurance business, we had an individual who absolutely got screwed by the process and he was owed $15,000 in a claim and he wasn't going to get paid. The insurance company was not doing the right thing and was not going to pay the claim. And I woke up one morning to hear the story and my wheels began turning. And then I turned the page on the story on the email and it said, here's how we've elected to pay this claim. Every one of us are going to give $1,200 and you're going to give $2,400 since you own the business. And this man's going to get a check for $15,000 because that's who we are. Tears to my eyes. I never once had to suggest it. I never once had to model it. I didn't have to do anything except show them who we are as people and what we believe should be true in the world. It showed up in their own behaviors. That's the happiest $2,400, no return loss I've ever well, yeah. uh, paid in my life. Well, the amount, the amount, like just, just the amount of, um, freedom you have right you know into a a you've got people who are engaged and driving value for you at a, at a multiple number of levels right but you don't have to be there right it's that's that's that classic classic sort of saying again that culture is the stuff that happens when you're not around right because people yeah, understand and, and I, the expectation you're exactly right exactly right and i don't think it would have happened if i didn't put eight years of shoulder to the wheel pushing and and it feels cheesy and weird when you launch this stuff. When I stood up and said, guys, my job now is to build a culture that selects the right people who acquire the uh, objectives that we want to have a share in. You know, they said, oh, well, that's a very lazy way to live your life. We do all the work and you do all the high level stuff. I don't think any of the team, which has largely replaced itself, by the way, I don't think any of the team would say that today. 
if I get any criticism today, it's, hey, you're not doing enough on culture. You're not doing enough on, on, um, on people. That's let's, where let's I get talk about that in context of people because I want to cover yeah. the other couple of points here too. So people, so um, how, well, for, first and foremost, I asked the question at the very beginning, why do you start with culture? You said actually it depends, right? But there is an interesting yeah. thing here about, you know, if it's you and one other person, the culture is kind of you and that person initially, and then the business grows, right? Yeah. How do you advise, particularly when you're coaching your clients about, sort of scaling the culture in line with how the business scales, because, you know, it's much harder when there's 10,000 people trying to achieve these certain things versus when there's a few people in a room. It is. But I think that the, um, so first of all, you're going to use the culture to recruit the people. So the, the larger you get, the more important culture becomes for you to articulate to people coming in, because, you know, we always hear this trope about people don't leave jobs. They leave bosses completely inaccurate. They leave culture. They leave a place that doesn't serve them culturally any longer or never did in the first place. And so as you scale uh, people, you absolutely have to keep pace with culture being first and foremost. Job performance is not, um, you know, uh, results perform. None of those things are culture performance is what is going to keep you on the path. I had a meeting at the Ritz headquarters in D.C. one time. And it was, uh, it was a nine o'clock meeting, which they had sort of said, eh, you know, be better if we started at sort of 10 o'clock, but we had flights or something. So we showed up at nine. At 9.15, the entire room stood up, walked out to the hallway surrounding this massive, you know, seven, eight story lobby where there was a podium downstairs and someone pulled out the value statements and said, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen worldwide. And we have a letter from South Africa in the Ritz in South Africa a client was served in this way and some kid had dropped his teddy bear and they made sure to get the teddy bear back for them. And these are the way that we live our values. And our four major compass points are. And then 12 minutes later, we were sitting right back in the meeting. My head was spinning. I just watched 9,000 employees around the world stop their clock at 9.15 and do a small group huddle, three to four people. So in South Africa, for example, you know, in uh, Jayberg, where they've got the nice, beautiful Ritz there that you probably know, you know, the house head of housekeeping pulls five or six people into a little uh, corner office and, and goes through the exact same thing that's happening at headquarters at 915 local time. That's how you scale a culture. That's how you tell people that this isn't words on a page. This is something that we do. Culture is something that you do. It's an action. Love it. Love it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more. We've talked a lot about sort of culture and to some extent the people side of that. Let's talk about the numbers bit. So yeah. when you when you talk about numbers or ownership of numbers or the kind of CEO's role in that, because I see a lot of CEOs uh, delegate this part to their CFOs. They do. That's that always sense. the objection. Yeah, that's always the objection. I get two objections in the book. Number one is, uh, yeah, I'm a CEO and I wish I only had three things to do, right? Fair point largely you're doing too much and you should stop it. But of course, the CEO is the only job in the building without a job description and with an open to-do list. So someone, of course, can, can object to that. And I, and, I, and I understand and feel that and live that myself. Number two is, oh, well, the CEO, CFO does the numbers. True, but not true. The CEO's job is to set the agenda inside culture, inside people, and inside numbers. So what kind of person are we going to hire? The CEO should have an opinion on that and should voice that opinion. What kind of culture are we going to run? 
that's the job of the CEO to set the parameters of what that looks like. What are we going to try to achieve? That is uh, the CEO's job measuring on how we are achieving it or optimizing on how we are achieving it. That can be the, the sole province of a CFO. Got it. No Got it. So you're, you're... The, the, the same way a CHRO would do for people or I have seen chief culture officers as well. The execution of it can live elsewhere, but the agenda setting must live at the CEO level. Got it. And if you take someone like, just because it sparked a thought, you take someone like Steve Jobs, right? Now, through, through the lens we're looking at here, you might say an interesting leader, probably a great leader, but not necessarily a great CEO. Now, Let's evaluate him. So did he build a great culture? He absolutely did. Did he hire the best people and did he retain them? He absolutely did. And did he let the people go that weren't cultural fits? He absolutely did. Did he hit his numbers? I think he actually did. He had a very empowered uh, public company CFO to do that, of course. I think that but happened I think later, but I, but I agree with yeah. you. I think, I think sometimes there's a timeline. I think he also meddled in lots oh, of areas. Yeah. So, so I'm bringing back to the point you said about, you know, the CEO doesn't have a job description. I think that's quite an interesting just to probe around a little bit here because, because I think my view of it is that absolutely, I agree with the three things, 100%. Then I think there's this kind of area, <laughs> right? Which is what I call the meddling area, right? Where, you know, you might've got something incorrect with the person you put in or the culture's not right or something like that. And yeah, there's, sure. an, there's an accountability to jump into that area until it becomes right. And I found that, as you know, I've done this role and I've found that I've always had like a top line, what I call 30,000 foot view of the company, which covers the three areas really well. And then there's the, um, the granular, <laughs> the granular view where you have to take that sort of swan dive, so to speak, into an area for a period of time. Not that you necessarily want to do it, but as soon as something like that has got where it needs to be, then another one comes up. That's right. Yeah, that's do you, correct. Do you find that's your experience too? And, and also how you've worked with other, because, because what I want to kind of get across here is it's not always, and I think most CEOs would know that. And certainly ones who want to become CEOs may not. It's not always the fact that you get these three things working. It's always in equilibrium in a perfect world. It is. But in practice, no, I don't think that ever happens. Yeah, I don't think that ever happens. Now, I will say a couple of things. One, you know, if I look at a, a beautiful lake or a pond or a body of water and I take a pebble and I throw in there, what kind of response is the lake going to give me? It's going to give me a pebble based response, small ripples that that smooth out over time. If I throw a truck into it, right, what kind of response am I going to get? I'm going to get truck response, huge splash, big ripples, but again, again, eventually will go away. Do I ever throw a pebble in and get truck response or vice versa? No. But in life and business, when people are involved, you know, I may come in and say, hey, the parking lot isn't swept and the receptionist loses her mind. Well, she's not losing her mind because I said something or the parking lot wasn't swept or something. She's losing her mind because other things that are unseen to me. Right. And so if I am keeping the, the, the lake sort of placid, I'm doing that by balancing culture, people, and numbers. But that doesn't mean that my people are not still going to cause ripples, probably in a, in a, in a, a good way, not necessarily drama way. But it doesn't mean that that isn't going to happen. What I'm trying to get to is this idea that if I ignore these three things and I'm constantly just jumping in doing people's job for them, 
then I'm never going to get to the place where the ripples are smooth and I can choose where to put my energy. The judo mentality of using the momentum of something to oh, feed yeah. the momentum of something else is never going to happen if I don't reach a period here. In my uh, primary insurance business, Nick, I don't work four hours a week in that business any longer. I don't have to. <clears throat> I've already told you the story of how those guys are getting it more right than I ever got it um, because I've shown the culture strategy there. I've shown you know the vision for what it should look like. Um, so I think there's something that people absolutely need to prioritize this and 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 literally stop doing as much work as they are doing on things that are not their jobs. Because I just said this to a client last week, um, you know, his team comes in and presents him 85% done projects all day long. And he's mad at them for doing it. Well, guess really? who trained them? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Guess who trained them to bring him 85% projects? He did because he loves to be the superhero that finishes everything. And so in watching their culture, it's exactly what goes on is, is they're so happy to bring him something that he can be the superhero to finish, right? And so we're in a process now where he's had to say, he's sending me texts every time he does it. He's had to say, I don't know. What do you think the next step is? And step away and not do it. And his team is totally crestfallen. <laughs> they think he's unhappy with them and that sort of thing. But it's breaking that cultural sort of pattern so that they can go on to do much better work. That he, and he's got a really good team. They're capable of doing 180%, not just 80% of the job. Yeah, well, that, that brings us to the last thing I wanted to cover today on this conversation, which is a line that I've used beforehand, but you, you mentioned it as well about it starts with identity. I often say you can only scale a business and ultimately your life to the level of your identity. And quite often you sabotage things if you don't understand what that is. H how do you think about that, you know, in terms of the person first, you know, the leader's um, center, if you want to think of it like that, and then their ability to be more impactful from that? Yeah, I can still remember the first time I saw the mental model. It made me so weak need I had to sit down. I felt like I had seen something for the first time that it was this, you know, parting of the veil. And I saw the matrix, right? The, in, the code in the matrix for the first time ever, like in the movies. My great mentor, Ron Willingham, who wrote um, all kinds of best-selling books in the late 80s and 90s, Integrity Selling, The People Principle. I mean, just 12 New York Times bestsellers without trying. Wow. Got, got <laughs> on a, one of those post-it notes, you know, and drew a snowman. And he said, Trey, we're all created in three dimensions, an intellectual dimension, an emotional dimension, and the dimension that, that holds our identity. And what nobody knows is that your intellect and your emotions follow the image that you hold to yourself and your identity. So if you want to change behavior, change people's understanding, acquaintance, and intimacy with their own identity, and then you can change behavior all day long. This can also be used for evil don't touch it unless you're willing <laughs> to use it for good. And it's the most simple thing in the world. And people give you, so it's the, I think, I feel, and I am dimension. And people will tell you all day long, Trey, I disagree with you. I feel this way. And I, I will respond, you know, it's almost NLP programming. Well, if we could move past your feelings into your definition of identity here, what would it look like? And you just have such massive breakthroughs. That model wow. completely changed my life and my orientation in this world. 
I love that. Well, actually, we will link that because I think that's an important thing for people to kind of have a look at as well as your book. Um, is there any, if someone's listening to this now and and they're thinking, you know what, that really resonates with me, particularly the mental model. And that's is there is there a place that you would point them towards? Well, all of Ron's books have it. And uh, when Ron passed away, we we lost him in 2018. Um, he was very gracious to leave me the intellectual property rights to those all of his little models like that. And so you do see that in my book, uh, chapter uh, two, uh, has the actual pyramid shaped. The psychology um, of a CEO. Yeah, that's it. And then uh, we have a workbook. The publisher ordered a workbook for people to, to have in, in association with that. And it has a chapter there as well. And the entire thing is, is teaching the CEO, look, learn about yourself first, your psychology. You have intellect, you have emotions, but understand that your identity, the way that you see yourself makes those choices happen that you want to see happen in the world for good and for ill. The patterns that you repeat for good or for ill over and over and over are hard-coded into an identity that you continue to live out. If it's true for you, it's true for everybody in the organization. Ron was famous for saying, you know, when I have a bad day, I'm doing my best to respond to complicated circumstances. When you have a bad day, you're a jerk, right? That's how we treat everybody. And we have to flip that and understand that when you're having a bad day, you're probably also doing the best you can with circumstances that you have. And the minute that I understand that and can show any sort of empathy for that, the stress between us will go down and our likelihood of finding a solution will go up, but we have to be shoulder to shoulder to do that. We can't be nose to nose. Love it. Very, yeah. very good. All right. Well, listen, that's been an amazing conversation, Trey. Um, the book is fantastic. For those of you who would like to get it, I'll read it to you again. It's a CEO only does three things, finding your focus in the C-suite by my good friend, Trey Taylor. And I have learned a lot from hanging out with you, my friend. Uh, it's been uh, a lot of fun. Uh, getting to know you over this last 12 months. Is there another book on the horizon or are you a there is, guy? <laughs> there is. I, I, I can't remember if I told you this or not. So my original concept was, you know, a COO does three things, a CFO does three things. I called Cam Harold and I said, why don't we write the COO book together? And Cam said, I would, but I just finished it. And I said, oh yeah, sure. He sent it to me. And is that the I'll second in command one that he's done? It's really, really good really good of course it would be with him but it's really really good so now i feel like i can't do that my next book i think is uh churchill leadership secrets of churchill so i'm headed to the uk in february late february i'm gonna go to all of the life places of churchill uh blenheim bladen dundee which is his first yeah, um, yeah. parliamentary you have to go seat. to the uh, the war rooms in i gotta in go to the war London. rooms i'm gonna go to bletchley park you know, all of all of the places. And, and then I'm going to try to go to um, Marrakesh where he painted and all of that sort of thing. And I have these ideas that are sort of circulating that he had, of course, three to 12, um, you know, principles that he lived his life with. One of them was, um, um, you know, Churchill was an aristocrat in a way that we don't think he, we think he was the great Democrat, right? That he was yeah, the yeah, great, absolutely. you know, champion of democracy. Well, his grandfather was the Duke of Marlborough. I mean, one of the 25 Dukes in the UK. He grew up in phenomenal privilege, uh, never paid a debt his entire life, you know, because that isn't what one did at that point. You just owed money your entire life and then it settled at your estate. 
and and I think if you watch the choices that Churchill made, you understand him a lot better if you believe in the original definition that he believed in of aristocracy, which is the rule or command of the great, of the people that have put themselves uh, into a place to be the best at the job. Of course, he lived in a time when that was defined by birth and wealth. We live in a time where it's much more meritocratic. And so I think that's one of the ideas that I want to explore uh, in that book. He also had a principle of excellence. Um, He would send these notes every day, and they were called prayers every day, instructions, thousands of instructions a day. And they were called prayers because he would start each missive with the word pray. Pray tell me why we have three ships in the Morocco Harbor instead of two. Those kinds of (laughs) the absolute contact with the details that he had in his entire life drove people mad because they could not see what he could see from his lofty vantage point and he was acquainted with all of those details so those are the things that i'm sort of beginning you never mentioned this you know well the good good news is we're gonna have a a few pints in a london pub that's the good part of this story for sure yeah for sure (laughs) on you too oh well yeah absolutely well you're in my neck of the woods that's how it works love (laughs) it that's good well trey it's been a pleasure sir i'm i'm glad that we finally got you on the show um heaps of amazing wisdom in this book and just from your own personal experience so on behalf of all the listeners of scale up i just want to thank you very much for giving us your time today nick thanks so much for the work that you do on the podcast and just being an amazing man and friend uh, really appreciate you thank you sir hey thank you for listening to this episode of scale up with nick bradley if you enjoy the show just as much as i enjoy creating it for you then i'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts and while you're there why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.